I want to read, I want to begin today by reading from the scriptures. And this is our text for today, but I don't want you to just hear these words read. I want you perhaps uh, to close your eyes or if you've got your Bible in your laps, just try to imagine for a moment what it might have been like to, be a, to witness the scene that I'm about to describe. John chapter 7, verse 53, it says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, however, they came and they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst of the crowd, they said to Jesus, Teacher, sneering, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say, Jesus? And they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Well, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at this woman. And once more he bent down and began writing on the ground. But when they heard it, these men went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. This is God's Word. Now, if you are a Bible nerd, and I don't use that label offensively, I use that saying, I am one of you, okay? Um, if you're a Bible nerd and you've got your Bible in your lap right now, you see that this text is probably set in brackets in your Bible. And there's either a footnote or a note above the passage that says, this is what it says in my Bible, it says the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. Other manuscripts add the passage here or after John 7, chapter 7, verse 36, or after John chapter 21, verse 25, or after Luke chapter 21, verse 38, with variations in the text. Now, uh, I, if you're kind of a, if you're into Bible scholarship and all that sort of stuff, this is really like you are itching right now, and you need this itch to be scratched. Um, I actually wrote I was going to address this, but it was going to take me about 12 minutes to do, and that's just not the best way to spend our time together this afternoon. So be on the lookout. In this week's uh, church newsletter, I'm going to provide some details, either a long article or I'm going to record a video explaining how we should think about this text in light of those notes, that th this passage wasn't in the two earliest manuscripts that we have. So, and I'm going to give... Uh, you guys some details on how we should think about this passage in regards to biblical scholarship. So if phrases like Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus uh, excite you, then, uh, we're, then just be on the lookout for our church newsletter this week and you'll have a good time. However, this afternoon, I don't want us to spend all our time doing sort of biblical scholarship. I want us to consider what this text says and how we can learn from it today. This passage is a story of Jesus a group of devious religious leaders 
and a woman caught in the act of a terrible sin. And so I want you to imagine with me for a moment. Let's try to bring this into the 21st century for a second. Imagine a woman from middle America. She graduates college in, you know, some flyover state, and she has big dreams. And so she moves where else but to New York City. She gets an apartment in Brooklyn, and then she lands a job in the city, and she's got all these dreams and hopes for her life as she moves to New York, and she's got this great job. She's achieving all of her goals, and she even meets a really nice man at the church she's been going to. They start dating. They get married. They have kids. I mean, life is good. This is the way she planned it. She's got her dream job. She's got a family. It's all going great, but it's not long before she begins feeling very stressed from parenting and working, trying to balance her career and her husband's career with raising their children. And she and her husband begin to get out of sync in their relationship. They struggle to communicate. Their schedules are all out of order, and they don't see each other as often as they once did. And as all of this is happening, all the stress and all of the, the communication issues with her husband, there at the same time, there's a man at work. And this guy starts giving her attention. They begin to flirt. They start with texting after work. They begin liking each other's Instagram posts. They start taking long lunches together at work, and eventually they cross the line and they end up in bed together. And this continues for a while. They keep doing it, and then one weekend they decide they're going to do a weekend together, so she concocts a story to tell her husband, I'm going on a business trip or whatever, but what they're really doing is they go and they get a hotel in Philadelphia, and they're going to spend the weekend together, her and this man. And as they exit their room before they go to dinner one night, they're walking down the hallway and down into the lobby, and they're flirting, and they're holding hands, and they share a kiss. And as they're kissing, she hears the sound of an iPhone camera shutter. And she sees that it's someone she knows in the lobby. And very quickly, this friend snaps the photo and immediately posts it to social media with a very harsh caption. And the comment section immediately fills up with people calling her all kinds of names. Some of her closest friends join in on the pylon, and her husband is justifiably, rightfully furious. Not only has she been caught, she's been exposed, her marriage is now destroyed, her relationship with her children has been forever affected. Her sin is made completely public, and now everyone she knows is talking about it. Can you imagine being that woman, the shame, the feeling of being exposed, the guilt of knowing that you have done something so awful and so damaging to the people that you love the most? I bet she felt so small so tiny in that moment. This is very similar to what happened with this woman in John chapter 8. Some Pharisees and scribes have caught a woman in the act of adultery. 
And then they parade her in public for everyone to see. She's publicly shamed. And then to add another layer to it, they drag her in front of Jesus, this, this preacher at the, uh, who's beginning to become popular. And, they, and, 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 and they, they pull her in front of Jesus. And this is where we find out their true motive. Their motive was never justice or was trying to help out the husband and, you know, bring truth to light. They were only using this woman as bait to trap Jesus. It says, they, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say, Jesus? And John even tells us in verse 6, he says, They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And these Pharisees and scribes were actually pretty sharp. This was a good trap. Because if Jesus shows mercy on this woman, then they've proven to everyone, and remember, they're in town for a festival in Jerusalem. All these people are watching, and if Jesus shows mercy, then they've proven to everyone that Jesus is soft on the law, that he doesn't respect the law of Moses. But if Jesus shows judgment and has this woman executed, they've now exposed that he isn't really a friend of sinners like everyone has been saying, and his brand has been destroyed. And Jesus... He bends down and writes something in the dirt. The men continue to shout at him while he does it. And he stands up and he looks at them and he says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at this woman. And then he bent down and started writing again in the dirt. But when they heard what Jesus said, they went on one by one, beginning with the older. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. The first thing we see in this passage, it says, He who is without sin cast the first stone on this guilty woman. Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured against you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own. You see, Jesus is not minimizing this woman's sin. Jesus is not saying, oh, she didn't do anything that bad. You know, Jesus is not minimizing this woman's sin. She has done something that is categorically awful. Anybody who is married knows that there is nothing that would hurt worse than what this woman did to her husband. But Jesus is calling out these religious leaders, these devious, scheming, serpent-like men for being just as guilty of sin as this woman was. We don't know if they were guilty of adultery as well, but what we do know is that they were guilty of breaking the two greatest commandments that Jesus said. Matthew 22, Jesus says that the two greatest commandments are, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Listen, these men, Jesus is saying, you guys have broken the first two commandments because we know they certainly weren't loving this woman as themselves. They were using her. They were shaming her. They, but they also weren't loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We know this because they were using God's word to break people down rather than build people up. And when Jesus calls them to the carpet for it, they realize that Jesus is right. And they drop their stones and they walk away. I heard one teacher say, these men weren't acting like 
the pastors that they were, they were acting like policemen, and their pockets were full of stones. People often look at this passage and love to point out how damaging graceless religion can be. And they're right. Religion that is done to break people down rather than build people up is one of the ugliest, vilest, nastiest things in the world. But it's not just Pharisees and scribes that can be jerks. Think of the vitriol that we see in our culture online these days. Someone in, usually a celebrity or a business leader or someone that's well-known makes a mistake. And people, it's like people race to see who can be the first one to tweet out this person's failure and then heap shame on them. And then they throw stones at them. And then the pylon begins and everybody's sharing and retweeting. And this person is, is, they should be completely removed from their position. They should be completely cast out. They should never be allowed to be in any kind of public position. Again, we want to destroy every aspect of their lives. We call this entertainment. Celebrity gossip. Those are real people. Do you realize that? When you purchase a tabloid, those are real people. Yes, they may have done some horrible things, but these are real people with real lives and real families and real feelings, and we just laugh and joke and sneer because it's entertainment to us to watch people crumble and fall in front of our eyes. So it's not only Pharisees and scribes that are self-righteous, and get a sick sense of pleasure watching other people's failures. Many of us are just as guilty of it as well. Jesus speaks both into the world of his day, but he's also speaking into ours as well. And I want to make one quick application here, and that's this. Sins of attitude are just as offensive to God as sins of action. Many of us think, oh, adultery, those people are the worst. But then the things in our minds, the way we look down on people, the way our prejudices make us view other people, we think that those aren't as big a deal because people don't see those. But what we see all throughout the scriptures is that sins of attitude are just as equally offensive to God as sins of action. To put it another way, religious pride, moral superiority, arrogance, those things are just as ugly to God as something like adultery. C.S. Lewis, in one of my favorite lines from Mere Christianity. And, you know, people always say, what is it with Christians? All they care about is sex and all this sort of stuff. C.S. Lewis says, look, if anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he's actually quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, yes, but they are the least bad of all the sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasures of power, of hatred. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, that is why a cold, self-righteous jerk who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But then I love what Lewis says. He says, but of course, it's better to be neither. When I was in high school, Some of you who are my age, you may remember this. When I was in high school, a song came out on the radio called What Would You Do by an R&B group called City High. It was about a woman who found herself in a difficult situation and began selling her body to pay for food and diapers for her child. And the chorus went like this. 
What would you do if your son was at home crying all alone on the bedroom floor because he's hungry? And the only way to feed him is to sleep with a man for a little bit of money and his daddy's gone. Somewhere smoking rock down, now in and out of lockdown. I ain't got a job now. So for you, this is just a good time, but for me, this is what I call life. You guys remember that song? You might remember that song. I remember hearing this as um, this song, and it came out in 2000. So I would have been in high school, and I remember hearing this song, and in the mind of my privileged, upper class, upper middle class sort of punk brain, I heard this song, and I thought it was a joke. I was like, was this like a comedy? Is this funny or something? Like, this is hilarious. Seriously? This woman singing about the only way to feed her starving son is to prostitute herself? Give me a break. Get a job, I thought, as I heard this song. Stop having so many kids was going through my brain. I thought to myself, look at those people. And I, I mean, that, just, that seemed perfectly reasonable of a thought to me, to be like, what, a, what is this song? But a couple of years ago, I was doing ministry in downtown Brooklyn with Pastor Edwin Cologne, a friend of our church who's actually going to be preaching here in a few weeks. And we were walking through downtown Brooklyn doing, Brooklyn doing ministry, and I met a prostitute for the first time. And I began talking to her, and I learned that she had a son starving at home. She had made mistakes in her past. She was trying to get clean from the drugs, but it was really, really tough for her. She wanted to get a job, but no one would hire her because of her past criminal record, and she couldn't get benefits from the government because she was homeless and didn't have an address. So she said, this is what I do to provide for my child and for myself. In her mind, there was no other option. Now, do I condone prostitution? Of course not. And do I believe that there are better ways for this woman to care and provide for her son? Of course, that's why we were doing ministry in that neighborhood, to help her get those benefits that she needed. But listen, that day, I held her hand on the sidewalk and prayed for her and watched as her tears and mine saturated a Brooklyn sidewalk. And when you hear a story like that, and when you hold a woman like that's hands, and you feel it shaking as you talk about the grace of Jesus, you stop laughing, and you stop being so doggone certain about the way the world is, and you begin to empathize with broken, hurting people. God did something massive in my heart that day. He showed me just how my judgmental attitude toward those people was just as much of a barrier to me becoming like Jesus as her sin was a barrier for her in becoming like Jesus. And I had to drop my stones in that moment. We've got to be careful not to be the Pharisees in this story. I want us to be a church, Crossroads Christian Church, to be a place where the biggest, most notorious sinners in this neighborhood can come into this room and, and can come freely without fearing that we will use our religion to beat them down. We are a stone-free church here at Crossroads. So 
here's what I'm saying to you. If there is any religious arrogance or pride or condescension towards sinners in your heart, you better repent of it because that is not the spirit of Christ. And it cannot and it will not be tolerated here at this church. We are a stone-free church. Amen? So we got to drop our stones. After all these men walked away, Jesus looks at this woman and says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No, not a one, Lord. And Jesus said, Well, neither do I condemn you. Notice the semicolon. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You remember the purpose, the scheme, the, the purpose of this scheme, this setup, was that the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. If he let the woman go, they would accuse him of being soft on the law of Moses. If he had her executed, they would accuse him of being harsh towards sinners. Jesus was in a bind. But Jesus, in this masterful way, showed grace toward this sinful woman and urged her to leave her life of sin behind. He did both of those things. And in I mean, this masterful way, he honored the law of Moses and he dignified and honored the woman in front of him. He is gracious to sinners. I do not condemn you, yet he is not soft on sin. Go and sin no more. You see, the message of Christianity can be understood in these two clauses. I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. But if you want to understand these two clauses, you have to understand the order is crucial. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you first. Then he says, go and sin no more. P.J. Smythe, a South African pastor in Washington, D.C., says, on the gospel canvas, it is imperative that the primary coat of paint of what Christ has done for us is allowed to dry before we get to the secondary coat about what we do in response. Here's what that means. The message of Christianity is not, go and sin no more. And depending on how you do, I may not condemn you. The message of Christianity is, I do not condemn you. Semicolon, pause, stop, reflect on what Jesus just said. I am not condemned. Go now from here and sin no more. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Are you saved by your good works? No. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Were you created for good works? Yes. You are not condemned. Let that seep into your spirit. Now go and sin no more. If you, the Bible front loads with grace before it calls us to change. We have been transformed. This is the message of Christianity. Therefore, we pursue transformation. If you get the order of this wrong, 
then one of two things will happen. You will either live your life in despair because you will never feel like you've lived a life good enough to be accepted by God. Or you will become a self-righteous jerk, just like the Pharisees and the scribes, because you'll think, hey, I've done it. I'm a good Christian guy. I'm a good Christian gal. I've done everything right, and God really likes me, and boy, he likes me better than those people. So if you don't get the order correct, you will either live in despair for not measuring up, or you'll look down your nose at other people because you think you're better than them and that God accepts you more than he accepts them. And neither of these is the way of Jesus. We receive the grace of Jesus, and then we respond to the grace of Jesus by becoming like him. And what is his grace? You see, the grace of Jesus is demonstrated so clearly in this passage. There's three things that we see Jesus has done for us in this passage. The first thing he's done for us is he has disarmed your accusers. As these men were sneering at this woman, looking on her as nothing more than an adulteress. This is all she was. Jesus disarmed them literally and spoke a better word over her life. I'm, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And her accusers walked away. Uh, you know, Psalm 23, everybody loves Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, he makes me lie down in green pastures. About several months ago, I was having trouble sleeping one night. And, you know, usually when I'm having trouble sleeping, I don't want to sound too spiritual. Usually when I'm having trouble sleeping, I do what everybody does, and I look at my phone and, you know, scroll the phone until I get sleepy again. But this particular night, I just felt the Lord calling me to go in the living room and to open up the scriptures and pray. And God led me to Psalm 23. And those first four verses are so familiar to me. But I've never really reflected on the fifth verse in Psalm 23. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And I remember that night just being, I mean, the Spirit of God just going, man, isn't that good news, Will? And I love that image. You pre God prepares a table before you, or for you in the presence of your enemies. So I love that image. God is preparing a table in the presence of our enemies. So who are our enemies? In my mind, I'm thinking about my shame. I'm thinking about my guilt. I'm thinking about my sin. I'm thinking about my failures. I'm thinking about my accusers, those people in my life that want to point out all the wrong things that I've done. I'm thinking about my own just brain that, like, accuses me. I accuse myself. Will, you're worthless. Will, you've done these things. How could you ever call yourself? How could you do this? And I just get this image of those kind of, those, those thoughts being personified and they're shouting at me, Will, you're, you'll never measure up. You can't do this. And I imagine, I imagine we're in an alleyway or something and Jesus walks up and overhears the conversation. He says, hey, quiet, everyone, come with me. And he takes all of us, me and all my accusers, and he takes us into a five-star restaurant. He puts me down in the seat of honor. And he makes my accusers line up against a wall like perps, you know, like doing a, you know, like in a jail cell. He lines them up against the wall and he makes them watch as he serves me the finest wine and the most delicious food. You see, Jesus disarms our accusers and he speaks a better word over us. In Colossians, I don't have this in my notes, but in Colossians there's a passage where it says that on the cross, Jesus, it says, he took the powers, the principalities, and all these empty philosophies, and all these accusers in your life, and he says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
Listen, whatever accuser is in your life, it's probably in your own head. You're accusing yourself of not measuring up. Maybe you've got somebody in your life that's accusing you of not measuring up. Maybe it's your sin, your shame, the enemy, Satan himself, shouting things at you. Jesus says that he prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He will disarm your accusers because he defeated the ultimate accuser, which is death. And if you're in him, that enemy has been completely disarmed and you have resurrection life. The second thing Jesus does, we see his grace in this passage, is he takes our stoning. This is how we know that he disarms our accusers. These Pharisees were right. According to their law, this woman should have been stoned to death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the law of God says that all of us are guilty just like this woman and just like the Pharisees. And the law of God says that the penalty for your sin and for mine is death and separation from God. But God is just. And he knows that therefore sin has to be put to death. So how does he do it? The message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ became your sin. And the stone that had your sin written on it God cast it on himself in Christ so that it would not hit you. Listen, I bet this woman never forgot about the stoning that she was saved from. And we shouldn't either. Christ has taken your place. Third, he calls us to a greater life. This is the grace of Jesus. I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Think about this woman. She left Jesus' presence with a command, go and sin no more. And isn't that a beautiful story? I mean, we love to tell this story. We love the, the story of the woman caught in adultery, and we, and we act as if it has this really happy ending, but the truth is we don't know the rest of the story. What, what we do know is that her life was a mess when she went home. Jesus says, go and sin no more. Okay, that's a beautiful thing, but she would now have to spend years of picking up the pieces of her broken life. The consequences of adultery can be very messy. We don't know if her marriage survived. Who knows what her children, if she had any thought of her. Who knows what her friends said. There there were probably a lot of scoffers in her life who were quick to brand her with a scarlet A. But she had a word from Jesus himself that said, I do not condemn you. You have the freedom to pick up the pieces of your broken life. And I'm giving you the power to live a transformed life. Yes, there may be consequences for your sin, just like all of us have probably learned. But the message of Jesus is that you do not have to be defined by your sin. Jesus has disarmed your accusers. He has taken your stoning, and he is calling you to a new life. Let me speak the truth of the gospel over you, Crossroads. In Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. So go and sin no more. Father God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you that you've taken the stoning that we deserve so that we could stand up and begin a new life just like this woman. And God, I pray for those in this room that are walking in here with addictions and habits that they can't seem to shake, and that if they were ever found out, would destroy their lives. 
God, I pray that you transform their hearts before. I pray that you transform their hearts so that they can live a new life. Often we live in a shame cycle where our shame makes us pursue our sin even more. But God, your word breaks the shame cycle. We are not condemned. You do not have to feel shame about our past, but rather we can stand up and we can live new lives, lives of grace and mercy and lives of transformation. God, I want Crossroads to be a place where people are transformed. And so God, would you transform our lives today as we sing and as we take the bread and the cup. And it's in your name we pray.